today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Those lampstands could never go out. They had to keep them lit. And the priests had to work every day in that tabernacle. But then, when Jesus came and fulfilled the tabernacle, there's no more work to be done because the work is finished. There's no furnishings in the tabernacle or subsequently the temple where you could sit down because the work was never finished. Until Jesus came and fulfilled it, now you can sit down. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Hebrews. It can be so hard to rest when you have a million things running through your mind. Today, Pastor J.D. reminds us of some of the details within the tabernacle that reflect the gospel as a whole, including the fact that under the old covenant, there was so much work to be done daily. They didn't even have a place to sit. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. But for now, here's Pastor J.D. in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 as he begins his message, The Real Jesus. All right, so today, 8 and 9 are not verses, they're chapters. Come on, you guys can do this. So um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin in chapter 8. These two chapters go together, as I think you'll see here shortly. So the writer of Hebrews, verse 1, chapter 8, by the Holy Spirit, writes, Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down, this is important, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest, verse 3, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve, verse 5, at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it, that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But, verse 6, in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God, verse 8, found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is actually a quote from Jeremiah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, 
and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant, verse 10, I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In his first room were the lampstand and the table, table of showbread, with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. <laughs> that wasn't detail? Okay. <laughs> we're almost there. Hang in there. When everything, verse 6, had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration, verse 9, for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Everybody okay? Verse 11? Okay. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished, to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, 
so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep in the same way. He sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, verse 22, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people, verse 27, are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> we're waiting. <laughs> Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> so after spending more time than I usually do studying and praying and preparing, I chose to title today's teaching, The Real Jesus. Now just that title alone kind of carries with it the inference that there's a Jesus that's not real. We okay? I heard a few groans there. I want to talk about the Jesus of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, because you know that Jesus is in the Old Testament. In fact, the entirety of the Old Testament. Starting from Genesis 1, Jesus is there. And it's all about Jesus. And everything in the Old Testament points to the New Testament, and the New Testament's all about Jesus. In fact, it's been said that you can find Jesus in every chapter of every book, and even every verse of every chapter of every book in the Old Testament. It's also been said that the Old Testament conceals that which the New Testament reveals. It's when you have an understanding of the Old Testament, the New Testament just comes alive. And this is certainly the case here with what we just read 
the writer of Hebrews, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, has a firm grasp on the Old Testament. And we have before us today two chapters that to me, I mean shut the case. I mean it's a closed case. Drop the mic if you prefer that metaphor better. That's a little bit more hip and cool. Drop the mic. There's no way that man could have come up with this. The two chapters that we just read are proof without question that God's Word is infallible, that God is real and Jesus is real, the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus, not the other Jesus. What do you mean the other Jesus? Well, that's what I want to talk about. Because oftentimes we as Christians settle for a copy instead of the original, and a picture instead of the person. And the person is the real Jesus of the Bible. And what I want to do is actually ask and answer those two questions from these two chapters concerning the person of Jesus Christ, the real Jesus of the Bible. The first question comes from chapter 8, and it's, do I have the copy or do I have the original? So in chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews is drawing upon and even quoting from Exodus 25, which for those of you that were with us when we went through the book of Exodus, this was, in fact, I went into my archive notes. It was um, 2009 we went through the book of Exodus. So uh, I was younger then. (laughs) What a fascinating study. And I mean, it was so detailed and all of the measurements and the exact instructions given to Moses to build this tent, this tabernacle. And there was a reason for it. And as we kind of just plowed through this, you know, detailed study with measurements and materials and all of these things, you're like, why do I need to know this? Oh, because everything about the tabernacle is a copy of the original in heaven. In other words, everything has to be measured this way with those dimensions and those colors and those curtains and that there and the furnishings here. And oh, interesting, by the way, I'm maybe getting ahead of myself, actually a little bit excited about this. Think about this. Did you catch that where the writer of Hebrews said that they had the furnishings arranged and they had the table of showbread? That bread had to be fresh every day. And they had the lampstand and those lampstands could never go out. They had to keep them lit. And the priests had to work every day in that tabernacle. But then when Jesus came and fulfilled the tabernacle, there's no more work to be done because the work is finished. There's no furnishings in the tabernacle or subsequently the temple where you could sit down because the work was never finished until Jesus came and fulfilled it. Now you can sit down. Because isn't that when you sit down? When the work is finished. 
Kind of like when your employer says, what are you doing sitting down? We got work to do. Oh, sorry. That was the tabernacle. Every day, every single day, you had to work. The work was never finished until Jesus came and fulfilled it and finished it. And now he can be seated. And this is what this is about. But here's the problem. And this is the whole point of this letter to these Hebrew Christians. They were tempted and pressured to go back to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, why would you want to go back to the copy when you have the original? Why are you going to settle for a lower resolution copy? I mean, we've got the original. This is the original. It's got a wet signature in his blood. It's the original. Why do you want a copy? Well, what do you mean copy? What are you, what are you saying? I mean, I'm still saved, right? Yeah. I still have Jesus. Yeah. But I want you to think this through with me. You know how it is when you're fellowshipping with brothers and sisters in Christ, and there's something peculiar about that brother, that sister in Christ. They're the real deal. It reminds me of those of whom it was said, ah, they were with Jesus. There's some people that you know have an intimate, personal, real relationship with the real Jesus, not a copy, not a political Jesus, not an activist Jesus, not a social justice Jesus. These are copies. That's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. I know I'm kind of stepping on some toes here by saying that. (laughs) Just hear me out, though, if you would, please. We talked a little bit about this in the prophecy update. I do have a question, and it's sort of rhetorical in in this sense. I, I don't find anywhere in the Scriptures where God's people were protesting. I do see in the Scriptures where God's people were praying. I just wonder, and I ask this again, rhetorical question. um, I wonder what would happen if we spent as much time praying as we do protesting. I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would change. Because as we saw with Hezekiah, God, through the prophet Isaiah, says to him, because you prayed, watch me now. I'm going to do this. You got the Assyrian army? Yeah, there's, they're right outside the city wall. 185,000 of them to be exact. What are we going to do? Answer, nothing. I'm going to do it. Watch me. Let me. And the account, and again, I... I'll tell you, Thursday night's Bible study was yet another time in God's Word where you just realize, wow, God. I mean, it was the perfect place to be in God's Word on the perfect day, because on Thursday, many of you got an email from King Sennacherib. Good, you're laughing. Those of you that are laughing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
I mean, don't look at me. I am not that clever. I could have never planned that on my best day. I could have never planned that we would be in Ezekiel 36 and 37 on Thursday. Afternoon is when the letter was sent with King Sennacherib's signature on it. Very threatening. Just give in. Just do it. Everybody else has. All the cities that we've taken, their gods didn't protect them. Just surrender. You know what we do to those who don't surrender? We make an example of them. We impale them on stakes and put them outside the city so everybody can say, ooh. And then we're still going to take you and resettle you and take you captive and make you slaves. And we're going to impale you in your faces with rings and carry you away by chains. So we can do this the easy way. We can do this the hard way. That was the letter basically, right? That's what Hezekiah got. So what does Hezekiah do when he gets the letter? He doesn't protest. He doesn't set up a coalition to rally. He prays. And he asks for prayer. And God hears his prayer. And God says, because you pray, which sends chills up and down my spine, because it implies that if Hezekiah didn't pray, that narrative may have read quite a bit differently. It could have read, because you didn't pray, I will not deliver you out of the hands of the Assyrians. No, we read this. He didn't even respond, by the way. His first response, not last resort, was to pray. Pray. He went to the the temple slash tabernacle into the presence of the Lord, and he laid out this threatening email before the Lord. I'll let you use your imagination. And the Lord's response to Hezekiah, because you prayed, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take care of this for you. No one arrow is going to be shot into your arm. I mean, uh, city. I'm sorry, that was, whoa. And not one arrow was shot. And then again, you'll forgive me, especially those of you that were here for the update and Thursday night, but I just can't get over this. There's this interesting detail. It could be easily missed at first read in the narrative in chapter 37, because it says that when they arose early in the morning, they found 185,000 dead Assyrian men outside the city walls. And the reason why is because God sent an angel. We don't know his name. I'm convinced this was an intern. He was a trainee, and they just said, just go down there and take care of this. And it means that they slept through the whole thing. Because if I'm reading that right, they arose and woke up in the morning, and they found that it was kind of like God saying, I need you to get a good night's sleep because you're going to have 185,000 dead Assyrians you're going to have to deal with in the morning. So sleep tight. Nighty night. They slept through the whole thing. How many of you know that God will provide and deliver you even when you're sleeping? Because He neither sleeps nor slumbers. That's my Jesus. That's the real Jesus. And sadly, many a Christian today settles for just the copy. 
We're so glad you joined us for this edition of In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. The book of Hebrews is rather enlightening as it traces all the history and traditions of the Old Testament, but ties them into the significance of Jesus and the New Testament. Essentially, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament covenants and symbols. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. It would be fascinating to have been a Jew during Jesus' time and to then later realize that Jesus was and is everything he said he would be. To fully understand the newer things, it's important to go back and appreciate the older ways, how it was done prior to Jesus coming to earth. The book of Hebrews is a wealth of knowledge and a resource for this exact thing. If you're just getting into this study and want to listen to other teachings from Hebrews, we invite you to go to calvarychapelkaneohe.com. You can find more messages there. If you're in the Kaneohe area, you're always welcome to join us on Sundays or Thursdays at Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. We meet for a time of worship, fellowship, and in-depth Bible study with Pastor J.D. You can find service times, directions, and more at our website, calvarychapelkaneohe.com. Until we meet again, we encourage you to dive deep into God's Word, looking for nuggets of wisdom and insights that God wants to teach you right in the book of Hebrews. As we look forward to next time, we trust that you've been encouraged by what you've heard today. Come back again for another edition of In Spirit and Truth 